Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is October 5th, 2014, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Preventing Falling to Pieces. Our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Carpenter. Chris is an associate professor of emergency medicine. He's also the director of evidence-based medicine at Washington University. He wrote the book called Evidence-Based Emergency Care, Diagnostic Testing and Clinical Decision Rules. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris. Thanks, Ken. I have enjoyed listening to your dozens of SGEM guests since I last joined you. The emergency medicine community includes so many brilliant minds and talented individuals. As a specialty, emergency medicine is fulfilling the visions of our forefathers by continually expanding the clinical and evidence-based frontiers of acute care medicine. Well, you know, the goal of the SGEM continues to be to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year. Yeah, there are about 3,800 biomedical publications every day on PubMed alone. Bastian et al. published in PLOS 2010 that there are about 75 randomized control trials and 11 systematic reviews released daily. They ask the question, how can anyone ever keep up? Well, I think the answer has to be no one could possibly keep up to that volume. No wonder it takes so long for high-quality, clinically relevant evidence to reach the patient's bedside. Yeah, the Institute of Medicine provided an answer. The answer is 17 years for 14%. This paper discusses how it can take an average of 17 years for 14% of research evidence to reach clinical practice. Well, 17 years is way more than 10 years, as we're always quoting on the SGEM. But we're going to try to shorten that KT window down to less than one week using the power of social media. Yes, one week. How can you possibly achieve such a goal? Well, the SGEM has entered into an arrangement with the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine and the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians to achieve that goal. SAEM publishes the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal and CAPE publishes the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. So you're going to get the best of both worlds, traditional peer review process and social media phone process. Exactly. Today's podcast will be the first in a series I'm calling SGEM Hot Off the Press or SGEM Hop. The idea came after doing episode number 48, Thunderstruck, where we discuss the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, I mean, sorry, tool, with lead author, Dr. Jeff Perry. Yes, that was a great episode, Ken, and it really cut the KT window down to one month. The response to the episode was fantastic. People really liked having the actual author on the SGEM to discuss their work at the time of publication. So you wanted to make face-to-face discussions with the authors a regular SGEM feature. This seems like a win-win for the journals, too, since many clinicians may not subscribe to their journal, and even those who do lack time to read every article and every issue. That 3,800 articles popping up on PubMed Daily means a physician would need to read 158 articles every hour, all day, every day, in order to keep up. Absolutely. And to see if we can make it even better by posting a podcast with the author the same week the paper is published. So, Chris, let's tell people how SGEM, hot off the press, is going to work. Sure. First, a paper that has been submitted, peer-reviewed, and ultimately accepted for Academic Emergency Medicine or the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine is going to be picked. 
Yeah, we'll select these papers in conjunction with the editorial boards of each journal. Yes. Number two, the SGEM will then put a skeptical eye upon the manuscript using the BEAM critical appraisal tool. Now, this is the instrument with published reliability and validity, the only such instrument that I'm aware of in any specialty. Third, one of the authors of the paper will be invited to discuss their work. This will be in order to defend the strengths, weaknesses, limitations, clinical applications of the ideas and data that they propose. Fourth, we will do a special SGEM Hot Off the Press podcast that will be posted the week the journal gets published. Ooh, in essence, this is KT at the speed of social media. Yes, forget one week. We've got one day. Fifth, you, the audience, will get a chance to respond via the blog, Twitter, or on Facebook. Well, where else do you get to have this interactivity opportunity to compliment or criticize research with the ear of the original author and the publishing editors? Number six, another exciting component will be a summary of the SGEM critical appraisal because top social media feedback will be published in a subsequent issue of each journal. So this process will leverage the content from original publication, secondary review, podcast dissemination, and social media interactivity and follow-up. Yes, the content, ideas, and innovation will reach a larger audience than with either medium alone and provide busy clinicians with a front-row seat to the authors. Ooh, all opportunities that would not exist without foam and the SGEM. I'm sure people can really tell how excited I am about this new series. Just like the Swami last year with the SGEM Classic episodes, I hope SGEM hot off the press will just be as popular. Okay, Ken, let's beta test this new idea by putting one of my papers scheduled for the October, October SAM issue through the SGEM hot off the press process. Well, then give me a case, Chris. Sure. 84-year-old woman, I'll call her Mrs. C, who lives independently and alone in her own home, presents to the emergency department via ambulance with a standing-level fall. She was bending over to pick up a letter that had dropped off her desk, lost her balance, and hurt her left non-dominant arm. After the fall, she was afraid to stand and could not reach her telephone, so she laid on the floor calling for help for hours until a neighbor heard her and called 911. She notes infrequent falls at home with no prior injurious falls. Her past medical history includes hypertension and a remote history of breast cancer, but she does not take antiplatelet or anticoagulant medications. An appropriate physical exam is performed and reveals an isolated left shoulder injury. Fortunately, the x-ray of her left shoulder is negative for any fracture. She is diagnosed with a minor contusion and provided with some acetaminophen. Her daughter-in-law arrives to take her home, but asks if Mrs. C is at risk for further falls in the future. So the question for today's podcast is, can healthcare personnel accurately identify subsets of geriatric adults at increased risk of falls or injurious falls in the months following an episode of emergency department care? So for background, the population here is the, in the geriatric population defined as all those over age 65. Standing level falls are the number one cause of traumatic mortality. We've known this for decades. Well, can you define what you mean by a fall? Yes, a fall can be defined as an unintentional, sudden descent to a lower level. This can be a fall from a bed or chair to the ground or down some stairs to a lower level of the home. In the vast majority of cases, we are not talking about falls from roofs or ladders. 
What about some stats on how common falls are in the geriatric population? Certainly. For community-dwelling adults over the age of 65, about one in three will suffer a standing-level fall every year. By the time you reach age 80 years of age, that increases to half or 50% of the population. And Chris, many of these people who fall end up in the emergency department. Oh, yes, they do. And those that come to the ED are usually falls from a standing level of less than six feet. About one out of five of these falls will result in an injury. And these falls cause a lot of morbidity? Yes, they can cause contusions, lacerations, and fractures. Fractures can obviously be any bony structure, but commonly include spine, hip, pelvis, ankle, wrist, and humerus. There are about 300,000 hip fractures every year in the United States alone, and by 2014 will probably have doubled in rate. All these injuries must cost a lot of health care dollars. Oh, for sure. In the United States alone, standing level falls cost $19 billion per year. Wow, that's a lot of money. That is billions with a B. But there is something even more valuable than money, life. You mentioned these falls are the leading cause of traumatic mortality in this age group. Can you put a number on that amount? Well, Ken, in fact, older adults who are admitted to the hospital after a fall, the sickest subset of fallers, will be readmitted to the hospital within one year in 44% of cases, and 33% will die within one year. This is a serious public health issue and not a natural consequence of aging, as I was led to believe when I was trained in emergency medicine. That is a significant amount of mortality from just a simple ground-level fall. So what is the paper you published in this month's Academic Emergency Medicine Journal that investigates these important issues? Well, the article is, is Carpenter et al. predicting geriatric falls following an episode of emergency department care, a systematic review, and appears in the October issue of Academic Emergency Medicine. Hot off the press. So lead me through this PICO, Chris. What was the population? Original prognostic research describing community-dwelling, non-critically ill geriatric adults after an episode of emergency department care. And what was the intervention? Falls and injurious falls, risk stratification at one to six months, evaluated in the ED setting. And that in the ED setting is important. Not talking nursing homes, I'm not talking inpatient floors. And so there wouldn't be any controls in this type of research setup. How about the outcome? The outcome is prognostic accuracy, that is sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios for individual risk factors and prediction instruments to predict falls in the months following an episode of ED care. Well, usually on the SGEM, I give the author's conclusion, but I think since we have the actual author here himself, you should give the conclusion, and I don't actually have to use air quotes for it. (laughs) Yeah, our conclusions were that this study demonstrates the paucity of evidence in the literature regarding ED-based screening for risk of future falls among older adults. The screening tools and individual characteristics identified in this study provide an evidentiary basis on which to develop screening protocols for geriatric adults in the ED to reduce future fall risk. So you know, Chris, our BEAM critical appraisal form for systematic reviews has six questions, and we've got to put your research under the same microscope as everybody else's. I would expect nothing less, Ken. Well, I am a skeptic and I am critical. So let's go through these six questions. The first one is, the diagnostic question is clinically relevant with an established criterion standard. Absolutely. Uh, As we just established, geriatric falls represent the leading cause of traumatic mortality in older adults. Fall risk assessment is advocated 
as a geriatric emergency medicine core competency and quality improvement target. Okay, question two. The search for studies was detailed and exhaustive. Yes, we believe it was. You guys actually used a medical librarian, which are amazing people, by the way. Yes, they are. And you followed the Moose criteria, so that was kind of nice for me. And the Moose statement is the meta-analysis of observational studies in epidemiology and PRISMA guidelines, which is the preferred reporting item for systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Correct. After publishing almost two dozen systematic reviews on a variety of therapeutic, diagnostic, and prognostic emergency medicine issues, my university, my Washington University Systematic Review Research Lab has developed a process for finding, abstracting, analyzing, and summarizing the evidence for these systematic reviews. Question number three. The methodological qualities of primary studies were assessed for common forms of diagnostic research bias. Yes, they were. Yeah, I see you use the QUADIS-2, or the Quality Assessment Tool, for diagnostic accuracy studies to evaluate the overall quality of the trial data. Number four, the assessment of the studies were reproducible? Yes, they were. We assessed that. Number five, there was low heterogeneity for estimates of sensitivity or specificity? No, this was not the case. There was significant between-study heterogeneity. And the sixth and final question the summary diagnostic accuracy is sufficiently precise to improve upon existing clinical decision-making models. Yes, it was. All right, let's get to those results. You found about 600 manuscripts with your search, and five papers met the inclusion criteria for a full review. Yes, of the five that we did the full review on, two articles did not include data to reproduce two-by-two two tables. We tried to contact the original authors for the contingency tables, but they did not respond. So this left you with three emergency department-based studies with about 700 or so patients? Correct. Two of the studies were prospective, representing about 660 patients, and one was retrospective, 107 patients. Note that a retrospective fall study does not make much sense to me. If I'm trying to identify risk factors for a past fall, why wouldn't I simply ask the patient whether they've had a fall in the past rather than some surrogate measure of falls? I see where you're coming from. Well, why don't you tell me about the two prospective studies then? Sure. There were 29 individual predictors assessed in the two prospective studies. These predictors, which were derived from a review of the literature from the inpatient world and the nursing home world, included past falls, number of medications used, self-reported dementia or depression, use of canes or walkers, ability to drive, sense of imbalance, and many others, as well as simple objective physical tests like the chair stand, the chair sit, ability to raise feet while walking and turn 180 degrees, and visual and auditory acuity. These constitute what we think of as the get-up-and-go test. The incidence of falls at six months was 31% for those who presented with a chief complaint of falls. The incidence of falls was about half, 14%, if the chief complaint was something other than a fall. So there was about a one-third incident of falls at the six months after geriatric patient was assessed with a fall to begin with, and 14% incidence of a fall if they were in the ED being assessed for some other reason. Correct. So why don't you give me some likelihood ratios? Were any of the 29 predictors good enough to rule in falls? Yeah, Ken, in the simplest terms, a likelihood ratio is the probability of a test result, positive or negative, in a patient with disease or outcome in proportion to the same test result in a patient without disease or outcome. So you're asking me which had likelihood ratio positive greater than 10? Exactly. 
were there any of the positive likelihood ratios greater than 10, indicating that a geriatric person would be at a high risk for another fall in the next six months? The answer is no. The best likelihood ratio positive was found in one of the two studies and had a result of 6.55 with a 95% confidence interval 1.41 to 30.38. However, when that risk factor was combined in the meta-analysis, the summary likelihood ratio was 2.54 with a 95% confidence interval 1.62 to 3.98, nowhere near 10. Uh, That's too bad. But was there any individual predictors that could rule out a fall with a negative likelihood ratio of less than 0.1? Unfortunately, the answer was also no. The best was if the patient could cut their own toenails, kind of silly, but it's a marker of a lot of different motor functions. That had a negative likelihood ratio of 0.57 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.38 to 0.86. Remember, that was the best. How about if you could like combine some of the data into some kind of fall risk prediction instrument? Great question. We described two instruments, the Tiedemann instrument and the Carpenter Fall Risk Prediction instrument. (laughs) So I see one of them is named after you. Ah, yes, that's correct. That particular instrument was derived during my emergency medicine, internal medicine residency in Pittsburgh at Allegheny General Hospital, using a resident research award from the Emergency Medicine Foundation. Kudos to the EMF. I told my mentor that we ought to name the instrument, but we never did. For this, so for this systematic review, my co-authors and I had to call the instrument something. Since the Tiedemann instrument from Australia also lacked a name, we decided to use the first author's names as the identifier. Both instruments use a similar scoring system based upon two to four fall risk factors. So the Tiedemann score of three had a positive likelihood ratio of 3.76 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.46. Correct. In contrast, the Carpenter score of greater than one gave a similar positive likelihood ratio, but proved much more useful to distinguish subsets at lower risk of falls with a negative likelihood ratio of 0.11, getting darn close to that 0.1 threshold. We opined that, quote, although our results fail to provide a definitive fall screening strategy, the quantitative summary estimates of fall incidence and risk factor accuracy and reliability provide an evidence basis on which clinicians, nursing leaders, administrators, educators, policymakers, and researchers can build. Well, Chris, I want to compliment you on doing this geriatric research. Clearly, there is a need to figure out who is at greater risk in this geriatric population. These types of falls cause significant morbidity, mortality, cost a lot of money, and we simply lack the resources to treat every older adult as a high risk for future falls. Thank you, Ken. Risk assessment in aging adults is advocated by multiple professional organizations and licensing bodies. Nonetheless, geriatric patients rarely receive guideline-directed care for falls following an episode of emergency department care, uh, as evidenced by a paper by Donaldson et al. in the Archives of Gerontology and Geriatrics in 2005. Well, at least this will add some information to guide the conversation. Well, multiple barriers exist between contemporary emergency department management of community-dwelling senior citizens and optimal injurious falls prevention. The first and most prominent obstacle is the lack of ED-validated risk ratification instruments to distinguish low risk from non-low risk for falls. If we cannot identify the at-risk, how can we efficiently and cost-effectively proactively work to prevent future falls? Funding agencies have got to recognize this conundrum too. Well, aren't there some guidelines on fall risk stratification? There are some, 
non-EM, I repeat, non-EM guidelines, committees, and prominent funding agencies opine that fall risk stratification risk factors and instruments from office-based settings, hospital wards, and nursing homes ought to extrapolate to the ED. However, evidence-based medicine proponents argue that validation in the ED is essential. The current meta-analysis from the Academic Emergency Medicine Evidence-Based Diagnostic Series that we're talking about takes an essential first step toward this objective. Well, it certainly does take that first step towards the objective. But you know what? I need to remain skeptical, even of my friends and colleagues. So I was wondering if you could answer a few questions about your study for me. Shoot. I wanted to know why you limited this systematic review to the English language only. There must be other researchers out there working in non-English countries with large geriatric populations. One that comes to mind is perhaps Japan. This may indeed be true. My research lab currently lacks funding or capacity to translate hundreds of abstracts in dozens of languages to find the few abstracts that might require full translation. Remember that our English language only search identified 601 abstracts to review. In addition, I attended the International Association of Gerontology and Geriatrics meeting in Seoul, Korea in June 2013. This meeting brought together the world's medical and non-medical experts in the care of an aging population. I sought expertise in ED-based falls prevention, as well as cognitive assessment, frailty, and functional vulnerability during my week in Korea. I also serve as the chair of the American College of Emergency Physicians Geriatrics section and a founding member of the International Consortium for Emergency Geriatrics. Based upon these exposures and leadership positions, I'm not convinced that there is a novel emergency department-based fall risk stratification protocol anywhere else in the world. Well, you seem to defend the English language search fairly well there. But there was another search limitation. And I'm not trying to be funny here, but did you search the gray literature? Oh. I mean, <laughs> you did an exhaustive <laughs> electronic search, but what about hand searches, reference list searches, and speaking to other experts in the field? Well, we did conduct a hand search of unpublished abstracts in academic emergency medicine and annals of emergency medicine. Admittedly, we could have hand-searched various other scientific assembly research abstracts, including the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, and the European Society of Emergency Medicine. Yeah, no, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of dollars to be able to do those gray literature searches. Yes. Were you disappointed in the quantitative conclusions of this systematic review? I was disappointed for clinicians and educators seeking a definitive answer on this very important question. However, I strongly feel the results are still useful. More importantly, this research ought to serve as a siren song to emergency medicine investigators and funding agencies that we need, we need to devote more time, energy, and resources to solving older adult acute care questions. If we can't accurately identify older adults at increased risk for the number one cause of traumatic mortality, what else are we missing? Dementia, delirium, frailty, functional decline, can carpe diem. So what you're saying is we need to seize the day. I'm going to translate that. We need to seize the day and take the opportunity now. Touche. Why do you think the results are still useful, though? Well, we explored 29 commonly referenced risk factors across two prospective ED-based trials. None of the risk factors, including objective tests of function, like the elements of the get-up-and-go test that we always are teaching our residents to perform before patients leave, none of these accurately predicted falls at six months. However, two risk prediction instruments were described. One, the Carpenter Rule, 
significantly reduced the post-ED fall risk with the negative likelihood ratio of 0.11. Remember those 95% confidence, confidence intervals were sufficiently narrow, ranging from 0.06 to 0.20. So why do you think you got these unsatisfactory results from the study? Well, Ken, this is a complex issue, and I think with this podcast, you're going to include a figure showing how complex the intrinsic and extrinsic risk factors are that propagate falls in older adults. Falls represent a complex relationship between an aging individual's senescent physiology interacting with these intrinsic and extrinsic stressors. The risks of falls for an individual are neither static from day to day nor comparable to the next patient of similar age and illness severity. Furthermore, existing trials did not use the STARD criteria that define how to conduct and report diagnostic trials, including the lack of an explicit and uniformly accepted definition of falls. Future trials must do so while employing more definitive gold standards for fall occurrence, like using small smartphones to detect falls. So Chris, could you give me a bottom line then for this project? Yes. Persons aged 65 years or older are an increasing percentage of the total population. These people fall, get injured, and even die as a result of their falls. We do not have good ED evidence to help us predict accurately or reliably who is at risk of falling. High-quality research is needed for healthcare providers, funders, and guideline developers to use in deriving screening protocols. So how are you going to resolve this case of this lovely 84-year-old woman named Mrs. C.? Well, this lovely 84-year-old woman was my grandmother in 1995. She was treated conservatively for her minor contusions and discharged home with her daughter-in-law. She and her daughter-in-law were advised to follow up with her PCP in the next week and return to the ED if she has increasing pain, decreasing function, or is otherwise concerned. So how do you think people, clinicians, listeners to the SGEM should apply this clinical information? In my opinion, ED-based fall risk screening for older adults should use the most accurate risk stratification instru instruments available until better tools are developed and validated in ED settings. Using other instruments, like the Stratify instrument or the Hendrick II, which have been looked at in geriatric settings, not ED settings, but using them in the ED, leaves clinicians, patients, payers, and policymakers without valid evidence-based estimates of post-ED fall risk. Funding agencies and researchers should more aggressively pursue more definitive and clinically useful fall risk ratification. So one of the most popular parts of the podcast always is that how do we talk to patients? How do we explain this information? What are you going to tell patients and usually their family members when somebody comes in like this with a fall, Chris? Yeah, Ken, I'm, I'm glad that you have this section of the podcast as well because the 2016 SAM Consensus Conference, which I am co-chairing, is devoted to shared decision-making as well. This is essential. What I would tell patients in this scenario is that standing-level falls are very common and ca can even cause death in people over age 65. There is about a one-in-three chance your mother-in-law or loved one will fall again in the next six months. Unfortunately, there is no single fall risk factor that we know of that can predict who will or will not fall. However, there is some information that I can give you to try and prevent another fall. Yeah, I think this last section of the podcast has been really well received. Just listening to how other experts like yourself, other guest skeptics, put it in their own words. What would they say at the patient bedside? Listening to that narrative is so helpful for me the next time I'm faced with an individual with a similar problem. So I really like this section. But the final section is always that Keener contest. And last week's winner 
was Lois Swisher from Ambler, Pennsylvania, who is a repeat winner. Yes, a repeat Keener Contest winner. She knew the major adverse effects of procainamide to watch for were cardiac in nature, specifically watching for hypotension and prolonged QRS and QT intervals. The infusion should be stopped if the QRS or QT prolongs more than 50% from baseline. Good job, Lois. Excellent. So, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be sending Lois an extra special cool skeptical prize. But Chris, what is the question for this week's podcast? The question of the week. In 2010, ASAP, AGS, SAM, CORD, EMRA, the AMA, and the American Board of Emergency Medicine, among others, combined efforts to produce and publish geriatric core competencies for emergency medicine residents to attain prior to graduating. What is the specific recommendation for these guidelines regarding geriatric fall prevention? So if you know what the specific recommendations are for geriatric fall prevention, then send me an email, thesgem at gmail.com, and use Keener in the subject line. The first person to correctly answer the question, like Lois, will receive a cool, skeptical prize. Well, thanks, Chris, for helping launch the SGEM Hot Off the Press series. Kudos, Ken, and congratulations to Academic Emergency Medicine and Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine for diving into the world of social media. I'm confident the SGEM Hop will be a whopping success. So stay tuned for the next episode of the SGEM Hop. But until then, what do we always tell the SGEM listeners? To be skeptical of anything you learn even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. <laughs> <laughs>